Return on India is the latest release in the Colossus family of podcasts. For full transcripts and more supporting materials, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you will find the full library of content from Colossus shows like Invest Like the Best, Business Breakdowns, Web3 Breakdowns, Founders, 50X, and now Return on India. If you'd like to stay up to date on all announcements for Return on India and other Colossus shows, make sure to sign up for the weekly newsletter again on joincolossus.com. Now on to the show. Welcome to Return on India, a deep dive series covering one of the most populous and promising economies in the world. Through conversations with central figures in Indian business, Return on India will unpack the details that matter for investors and operators. We will examine the unique cultural dynamics behind emerging demographic trends, and we will drill into key sectors by talking to the business leaders driving change. We plan to investigate the past, present, and future as we explore India's investment case. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. My guest today is Nandan Nilakani. Nandan is one of the most transformative figures in the Indian technology landscape, both in the private and public sector. He co-founded Infosys, one of the world's largest information technology services firms, with a market cap of over $75 billion, and served as the chairman of UIDIA, which developed many of India's world-class public digital infrastructure initiatives, such as Aadhaar, UPI, OCEN, amongst others. Nandan is often referred to as India's CTO, and I'm thrilled today to have the opportunity to speak with him. Nandan, sir, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. So our discussion today will primarily focus on the philosophy, architecture, and impact of the India stack. But to kick off the discussion, I'd love for you to set the stage in 2008, when India stack was really still in its infancy. I think at the time, less than 20% of the country had bank accounts, financial exclusion was rampant. What was the original thought process and the vision for the project? Well, the project began with the unique ID project. What happened was sometime in 2006, the Indian government wanted to give everyone a unique ID. And there were two reasons for that. The first was India was increasing its welfare programs and distributing things like pensions, scholarships, unemployment insurance, and so on. And they had to have an underlying way of identifying who the beneficiaries were. This is similar to what happened in the US in the 1930s when they launched the social security system. And that led to having a social security number, which everybody had, so they could ensure that they got their benefits much later in their lives. The second reason was that Indians were becoming increasingly mobile in a migrant society. India didn't have a robust birth certificate system at that point. So more than half the babies born in some states didn't have a birth certificate. And that was fine as long as they lived all their lives in the same village. But once it started moving around, they needed to have some ID to identify themselves to get onto a train or to get a job. So both the inclusion need for getting millions of people with ID, as well as the fiscal need of making sure that benefits were more efficient, led to the definition of the need of a unique ID. This was approved by the Indian cabinet in January of 2009. 
And I was invited in June of 2009 to join the government to lead the project. The unique ID, which my team developed as a digital ID, was the foundation for all the other things that got built. Yep. And we'll talk about Aadhaar and the development of it in the discussion. I think one of the really interesting things is the World Bank did a research study on global economies, and they put forward this argument that you've talked about, that the penetration of financial services is directly related to growth in GDP. And India followed that relationship as of 2011. But what was really fascinating was what came next. So if you carry forward that trend line from 2011, the World Bank estimated it would take India about 45 years to reach the level of financial services that India reached just seven years later in 2018. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about how that acceleration occurred, because that's obviously significant. Well, fundamentally, what happened was we designed this ID as a digital ID, which means you could do an authentication of the ID online. You could verify online. And then on that same ID, we developed something called a KYC or know your customer, which is an electronic know your customer. So you could use this to, and then if not notified by the proper regulators, it could be used to open a bank account or to get a mobile connection. It is called EKYC. And using the EKYC, the banks under the Jandhan Yojana program launched by Prime Minister Modi in 2014, opened up several hundred million bank accounts. They could do that very quickly because they could open a bank account in two minutes with just the ID as the electronic proof of who they are. That also became the basis for two things. One was a huge DBT program, which was electronically transmitting money into people's accounts with state through processing. That was very useful for all these pensions and so on, which is also extremely useful during the pandemic, because during the pandemic, many vulnerable people had to be given emergency financial assistance because of the vulnerabilities of having lost their jobs and having gone back to their villages and so on. So the government used that with very good effect to transfer money electronically into people's accounts. Over $310 billion has been transferred into people's bank accounts since the inception. And then the same pipe is also used for the purpose of remittances of Indians who are working in urban India to the families in rural India. So this financial pipe, both for DBT as well as remittances, essentially drove everyone to get a bank account, also pushed by the government through the Jandan program, which is why there was an acceleration of financial inclusion at an unprecedented pace anywhere in the world. So this India stack, as it's kind of famously called, it's a comprehensive set of technologies of three things, right? And we can explore these all from the lens of financial inclusion, because I think they make the point quite concretely. So one is identity, the second is payments, and then the third is data empowerment. Can you just unpack the India stack and explain at a high level what each of these layers are and what they accomplish? Sure. Let's take identity. The identity is the Aadhaar. That's the project which I led. I joined the government in July of 2009. I worked in the government for five years and I worked with some great colleagues. We rolled out this ID platform. And by the time I stepped down in March of 2014, 600 million people had the ID. And today, over 1.3 billion people have an ID. So the ID was the fundamental thing. Now, with the ID, you can do an authentication, which means you can do an online verification using a biometric or an OTP. And that confirms, you know, John is John or Romin is Romin and so on. It also does the EKYC, which as I explained, could also be used to massively open bank accounts. Another part of it, which was built around 2015, when my colleague Ram Sevak Sharma was the IT secretary. He was my colleague on the UID project. He and Dr. Pramod Varma, the chief architect, came up with the idea of digital signature using Aadhaar. So now a billion people can sign documents online using their ID. 
They also came up with the idea of a digital locker, which allowed people to store their documents on the cloud. And today, the digital locker of India has 124 million people who store their ID cards or their vaccination certificates or their driver's license. So basically, the ID with its authentication, KYC, digital signature, and digital locker was one suite of APIs which came out. And then the ID linked to the bank account cleared the DBT program, which I talked about, which allows you to transmit money. But separately, sometime in 2013, NPCI began a project of creating a peer-to-peer payment system. This was because we felt that with the arrival of smartphones, we needed a digital-first, from-the-ground-up payment system that was fast and efficient. And I was also appointed as the advisor on innovation and public policy to NPCI in 2015. And NPCI in May of 2016 launched a payment platform called UPI, which was an interoperable peer-to-peer four-party payment system. What we mean by saying it's four-party is that you could be using Google Pay and having a bank account in ICICI Bank, and I could be using Phone Pay and having a bank account in State Bank of India, and we could interoperate and send money in real time. So any bank account using any consumer app to any other consumer app. This is a unique innovation that's not been done anywhere in the world. And this system rolled out 100,000 transactions by October of 2016. Then in November 2016, the demonetization happened and the withdrawal of certain currency notes happened. Suddenly, the need to have digital payments became very, very important. And the government embraced and endorsed UPI. They launched an app called Beam on UPI, which the Prime Minister launched in December of 2016. And then other people came on the platform like PhonePay, Paytm, Google Pay, and so on. And that platform then went through the roof. Today, there are about 260 million people using it for payments. It does trillions of dollars of value. And last month did about 6.8 billion transactions. This is a radically different way of doing payments. And it's very, very popular and has completely democratized digital payments. It's fast, it's real time, it's free, it's convenient, it's efficient. So it's really changed the lives of a few hundred million people. It's something that's of particular interest to me just in understanding the system and just in the way you were describing both Aadhaar and UPI. There aren't many test havens in the world for a system like this. So if we look at a lot of Indian innovation, especially over the last decade in startups or technology, a lot of that innovation took inspiration from the rest of the world and built companies and systems using this kind of what I call X for India model. The system, however, is uniquely Indian. It was built with population scale in mind from day one. If we just take Aadhaar, for example, or even UPI, I'm curious from your perspective, being on the inside and leading the projects, what were some of the trade-offs or non-obvious insights to keep in consideration when designing a system where the goal was not just the initial onboarding of a billion people, which in its own right is a massive accomplishment, but the continual widespread utility amongst those people? Well, you know, there was a few principles which have permeated through all our thinking on such large systems. One is it has to be population scale. Now, population scale in India means providing for 1.3 billion people. So, you know, you have to think in terms of scale, just like the big tech companies think of scale, right? How do you make sure a billion people use Google Maps or Chrome or WhatsApp? Same principles of architecture apply. We had a very strong architecture team led by Dr. Pramod Varma, who came up with population scale thinking, which meant it had to really be able to scale up rapidly. We had to use the best open source technology for this. We had to use commodity hardware. So we had to make the whole thing very cheap and very scalable. And that's something which I think India has learned how to build such systems. 
Second, we have to make it extremely inexpensive for people to use because given people's purchasing power and given the need for it to be inclusive. For example, UPI is completely free. So when you pay somebody 10 rupees, they get 10 rupees. There is no deduction on that payment, unlike most digital payment systems in the world. Then you should be able to do very small transactions. I know people who have even transferred one rupee or two rupees by UPI and it works. So ability to do very small value transactions. It has to be ubiquitous and universal. So we didn't want a technology which is only accessible to a few. So as far as payments is concerned in India, you know, for those people who use smartphones, and maybe that's four, five hundred million people, they have many choices on UPI applications. But for those people who have feature phones, which is also a few hundred million, they also now have something called UPI one, two, three, which allows them to make payments on a feature phone. And then there are people who don't have any phones. So how do they access payments? And for that, we had a third system called Aadhaar Enabled Payment System, which does about 100 million transactions a month. And that is people in villages withdrawing money from the bank account using just the Aadhaar number. So they have an Aadhaar number. With the Aadhaar number, they do a KYC, open a bank account, and then they can go to any business correspondent and withdraw and deposit money. So we made sure that anything that we designed was universal, ubiquitous, and inclusive. These are some of the principles there. And rightly, as you said, the first wave of startups in India were those that were the X of India, you know, the Amazon of India or the, whatever it is. But what our digital infrastructure created through the India stack was created a new class of startups which use this infrastructure at tremendous benefit. And I think that's what we're seeing today, a new class of very different startups that use all this infrastructure that has been created by India to create very innovative and very high growth startups. So the scale is staggering, right? Over a billion people on Aadhaar, five years from launch. Today, I think over 95% of the population is documented. Importantly, for tech products, it also has a 90 plus satisfaction rate, which is not always common on a lot of these projects. The most interesting statistic to me, though, in reading more about Aadhaar was the dramatic cost reduction of an individual identity verification transaction. Again, I think the World Bank estimated this, but the cost of KYC went from about $23 pre-Aadhaar to just 15 cents post Aadhaar. So you've mentioned before, and you were just alluding to it now, that the way to kind of understand the Indian economy is high volume, low cost, low transaction fee environment. I'm curious how you start to think about or how we should start to think about second and third order effects when you start to lower transaction costs. This transaction cost is lowered by over 100x, by approximately 150x, right? So how do we start thinking about some of the second and third order effects that start coming from this type of infrastructure? I think what we are seeing now is what we call as combinatorial innovation, where you combine all these things and create new products. Now, a great example of the value of lowering the cost of EKYC and the time taken was Reliance Geo. And as Mr. Mukesh Ambani has publicly acknowledged, the fact that there was Aadhaar EKYC to get mobile connections issued in a couple of minutes played a huge role in their ability to attract 100 million free consumers to Geo in the first six months when they could give it away free. And they were able to do that because they were able to do a million EKYCs a day. Because they were able to do EKYC, they were able to give out 100 million SIM cards. And that laid the foundation for a revolution. Because what Geo did was Geo dramatically reduced the price of data in India and made it very, very cheap. Even today, India has among the lowest data rates possible. Indian data consumption went from about half a gig a month to half a gig a day, something like 30 times increase in consumption. And this happened in 2016, 2017. So suddenly, all these things came together. 
There was Aadhaar, which had now reached a scale in 2016-17. UPI came and got a big boost from demonetization. Geo came and dramatically collapsed the cost of data and made smartphones widely available. So when you can have a device in your hand on which you can do a KYC, open a bank account, you can transact, and you can use data cheaply, suddenly the foundation was laid for a massive expansion of the digital economy. So EKYC being used by Geo to get 100 million customers is a good example of how something when you deliver a digital product that dramatically reduces cost and time actually opens up markets that couldn't have been done so easily otherwise. And there are many other examples of that. There's a company called Zeroda, which is out here in Bangalore, which has become the largest stockbroking company in India. They're twice as big as the next player. And they essentially were among the first to embrace EKYZ for, for shares, for buying shares. They also use the technology to suddenly build a very large stockbroking platform. So there are many, many examples of how this infrastructure made a difference to many, many successful businesses. Yeah, and I think importantly for its understanding, Aadhaar can best be thought of not just as one kind of monolithic or homogenous piece, but rather an ecosystem of products, right? So there's different mechanisms that can be employed by Aadhaar, leveraged on top of Aadhaar, available to Aadhaar holders. Maybe you can help us understand that ecosystem a little bit more rather than this idea of just one homogenous product. It's very much an ecosystem because one of the key things we said was we would open up these ID and payments as APIs. You have APIs for authentication. You can embed those APIs into an app. You have APIs for KYC. You can embed that in your app. You have APIs to do digital signature. You can embed that in your app. You have APIs to store documents digitally. You can embed that in your app and so on. So because it is all based on APIs, you could mix and match these APIs to build different customer journeys and workflows and create new variations of that. All along, our belief was that if we have to enable the digital rails of the country, innovators will build on top of that. And this is not different from the internet. If you remember, the internet originally began as a U.S. government program, and the early internet of HTML, HTTP, SMTP protocol, browser, was all built by the public expenditure. It's only in 1995 when Mosaic, Mark Andreessen went to Valley and then set up Mosai and Netscape with Jim Clark that the private internet began. Similarly, GPS is also a great example of a government utility that gave a location and it's now used by Google Maps and Uber. So fundamentally, we said if we can build population scale infrastructure, which is cheap, widely available and provided with APIs, which people can embed in their workflow, then all kinds of innovation will happen. That was the thesis. And that's exactly what happened in India. And how was that conversation at the time with both private sector and public sector in India, right? The examples you just alluded to are kind of time-told stories in the U.S. It's interesting because if you talk to folks that are building technology today, or if you look at the U.S. environment today, it would be a shocker to many that this collaboration between the public sector and the private sector is actually what led to the foundations of these pillars for private sector to build upon. How was that discussion in India? Was it well understood or it was also similarly controversial to have the public sector and private sector participate? No, there was no controversy. There was a different issue where there was a debate about privacy and all, but that was a different debate. But we found that selling the idea of digital ID was very easy because The people who wanted the ID were people who are poor, people who had no access to anything. It was not the guy with the passport and the driver's license who didn't see the need for an ID. But the poor person in a village in a small town in middle India, if he or she could not do anything without an ID, of course they wanted an ID. So there was a massive demand for it, which we were able to take advantage of. 
what we found is that Indians seem to be very, very adept at using technology if they see value in it. There's no question about it. It will be about 260 million people. But the big UPI is actually in merchant payments. It took India 70 years to reach 6 million POS machines where you could use your cards. And in three years, we reached 60 million merchants with QR codes, all of which are on the UPI platform. And I can use any consumer app and pay on any merchant who has a UPI QR code. Nowhere else in the world you have an interoperable QR code like we have in India. So today, if I walk around the streets and there'll be a small vegetable vendor, she will be taking UPI payments when you buy your vegetables or a coconut seller or other day, a gentleman had come down from Norway. He saw a person typing out documents outside the registrar's office. Now, first of all, typewriter is an old thing, but he was taking a QR code to take payments. So we are finding that when you deliver technology like this, which is easy to use, provide APIs for innovators to build on it, make it cheap and effective, and create a customer value. The uptake is enormous. Let's talk about UPI a little bit more, right? Because you've mentioned some of the statistics around scale. UPI just as a model has certainly been a game changer for payments in India, but also a model that many outside of India can take inspiration from. Let's take a step back and maybe you can explain UPI to us. It's often described in this analogy that I really like. It helps make sense of it, which is this three-tiered cake. Can you help unpack UPI for us? Yeah. See, our goal with UPI was to make sending money as easy as sending an email. Now, email is one of the great products of the internet era. It's based on a protocol called SMTP protocol. So whether I use Gmail or Hotmail or Yahoo Mail or whatever it is, the underlying protocol is all using the same SMTP protocol. For example, when I send you a mail, I may be sending it from my Outlook using a Gmail server and you may be on some other system. You may be on Proton Mail or whatever. And yet you get it, right? So the ability to have a conversation without worrying about what platform you're on is what makes email so powerful. Whereas if I use something like WhatsApp, I have to make sure you're also on WhatsApp, otherwise I can't communicate with you. So he said the payment should be something similar. It has to be real time. The idea was also that the store of value should be in the banking system or in a regulated system. So the store of value could be a bank account or a wallet. But it has to be in an organization that comes under the regulator, under the central bank of the country, because money is an important thing and they get to regulate. But we also said that there had to be somebody to make all this work. And that's how the enormously phenomenal organization, NPCI, was able to make it work. They actually run this switch that they built. And then our feeling was that while the store of value is in the banking system, the consumer should get a consumer experience as good as what he gets when he uses his phone or his messenger product, which is why, again, through APIs, it was opened up to front-end consumer platforms called PSPs and so on. So Google came along and put Google Pay and they used the infrastructure and so did Phone Pay, which belongs to Walmart or so did Paytm, Amazon and so on. So suddenly all these large, sophisticated companies started giving a better and better consumer experience using UPI. That's why I think creating a competitive, interoperable payment market where innovation was the basis for going forward was the reason why it scaled up from zero to 6.8 billion transactions a month in the space of six years. Yeah, the impact and scale, similar to Aadhaar, has just been unbelievable. It grew from an ambitious idea to one of the top five payment networks in the world in roughly less than half a decade. Understanding the Indian economic landscape today and how it's evolving would, of course, be incomplete without understanding how much UPI has changed the landscape. 
and how much it will continue to change the landscape. What's the right framework? Because this is such a fast moving concept and adoption has been so quickly. What's the right framework by which we should be thinking about UPI? Most importantly, or interestingly for folks listening is we're now at this system where adoption has become so ubiquitous. How does that transform the payments landscape and the potential types of applications moving forward? It's important to understand that India is not an advertising-led economy at all. The big growth of digital technology in America was largely driven by the migration of advertising revenues from print and television and cable to the digital world. Today, the global digital revenue is about $475-$500 billion, of which two companies have about $300 billion. So advertising was the fundamental linchpin of the business in the West. But India is not a big digital advertising market. The entire digitalized revenue of India is barely $3 billion. And that's not enough to build a lot of companies. But India is a microtransaction market. In other words, being able to buy and sell small value products and services at zero cost is the key to making an internet economy in India. And that's why UPI was so critical for that because it allowed you to make a zero transaction cost, small value payments at scale. So you're seeing new business models. For example, one of the things in UPI is called auto pay, which allows you to set up a subscription-like thing. So for example, you want to buy Netflix or you want to buy some other service, you can say, deduct 100 rupees a month for my account for the next 12 months and set that up as an instruction which is automatically executed. You can do that for EMI payments on a loan. You can do that for a systemic investment plan when you invest in stock markets. So suddenly AutoPay allows you to do all these things. And AutoPay has been a huge success. Similarly, India's IPO market has benefited from what's called ASBA on UPI, which meant that when you apply for a IPO of a company, you can apply and you can reserve the money from your bank account using this ASBA on UPI. And only if you get an allocation of shares in the IPO, because IPO is often oversubscribed, so there's no guarantee that you'll get your shares or you'll get only partially what you applied for, only then the money is deducted from your account. And today, 50% of IPO allocations come, people just tap on their phone and apply for IPO. We talked about this combinatorial innovation. So all these things are happening and UPI, as I said, at about 6.6 or 6.7 billion a month. Our NPC expects that to go to a billion a day. The number of users is 260 million. And if all the new things that have been done, like UPI 123, which works on feature phones, then they launched a new thing, UPI Lite, which does offline transactions for small values. You don't have to go back and hit the banking system all the time. UPI will go to maybe 500 million users in the coming years doing a billion transactions a day. And so it's in the fabric of the society. And ultimately, when all these things happen, the cash in the economy will slowly start going down. It's not happened yet because a massive economy. But what's important, Romain, is that when these things happen, every time you have these things, you have a digital history because there's a record of payments you have done or the record of things you have sold or the things you have purchased, etc. The next phase of this revolution was how do we then build the infrastructure for people to use their own data? or the digital history or the digital footprints, how do they use that to improve their lives? This is really the next phase of the journey. And it came from a very fundamental understanding, which I articulated about six, seven years back, which is that Indians will be data rich before they're economically rich. What I mean is that India may have a per capita income of 2,800 or something, but a guy using a smartphone in Bihar has the same digital footprint as a guy using a smartphone in Boston. 
and therefore people will have a digital footprint on par with the western consumer but not the income now if we can make data available to them to advance their lives we are actually using this digital footprint they have to get better healthcare better education or better financial services that's really important that you're going from a transaction situation to then using the digital footprint for other things i want to spend a little bit more time on that piece because that's really the last layer in the indian stack which is really i think the most interesting and most strategic the data empowerment layer so first we have identity the ability to understand who's in the system then we have payments the ability for those verified individuals to participate in the system and then we have data empowerment so maybe we can go a little bit deeper how should we understand data empowerment and we can talk then a little bit more about the different types of applications that data empowerment enable well, data empowerment in some sense is the most profound part of what's happening in india data is so important today and as we digitize our lives and our online activities everything we do creates a data footprint so whether we buy things whether we see things whether we click on an ad buy order food whether we have a relationship work remotely everything creates a digital footprint historically the nature of data is such that this data has been aggregated by companies and used to provide you advertising services or whatever or used by governments to keep tabs on the population but the notion that individuals and small businesses can use their data under their control to do things that will make their lives better is a completely brand new idea that's exactly what we have done in india we have built a population scale system which allows every individual and every business to take advantage of the digital history to get access to benefits so the first example of this is in the area of financial services where the reserve bank of india which is a very progressive regulator which has supported aadhar dbt which has supported upi has come out with the standards of something called account aggregators and account aggregators are essentially intermediaries who are regulated by the central bank who provide the job of enabling individuals and businesses to take advantage of their own data and the way it works is that suppose i'm a small business historically in india it's been very difficult for small businesses to get access to credit because there's been no way for the lender to verify their economic credentials their assets and so on so the bias has always been to give money to big companies and the small guys get left out now that they have a digital history instead of using the assets on the balance sheet can we use their digital history as information collateral which is like how can we give them loans based on the digital history because if they are sold 100000 rupees worth of stuff through upi and they have their digital history you know that they have a business that sells 100000 rupees worth of stuff and so on so if i'm a small business wanting a loan in this new world using information collateral i go to my account aggregator and there many of them and they all compete and i tell my account aggregator get my bank statement from bank x and get my gst details from the tax system and get my invoice details from somewhere else all this are real time requests so when i make this request account aggregator using standard apis goes to these gigantic databases and retrieve your data on your behalf it's only done with your permission so there's no privacy or any issue and that information is given encrypted and digitally signed from there so the account aggregator can't see the data that's very important we don't want him to become a new concentrator of data so he just acts as a traffic cop and he then sends data on your behalf to a set of lenders they unpack the data under your instructions each of them offers to lend you some money and then you take whichever offer you like so suddenly you use your information collateral to get affordable credit from a lender 
this is the power of data, but data in the hands of the user. And that is fundamentally different from how data is treated anywhere else in the world. In some sense, this is really the defining transformational aspect of what's happening in India. I think that last point is especially important. I don't want it to go understated, right? Is this idea that the account aggregator is a data access fiduciary. So they can't read or resell consumer data. This is a point I think that's worth expanding upon because certainly folks that are listening in the West are very familiar with this idea of data systems and business models of data aggregators being foundationally built upon as packaged data resellers. Everything in the West that are data-rich products of a certain generation, Facebook, Google, et cetera, namely, are quote-unquote free products, but we, the consumer, are the product. And so can you expand a little bit more on when you were thinking of account aggregators and their role in the system design itself? Because account aggregators are a new type of regulated body. How are you thinking about the trade-offs of creating a player in the ecosystem that was a traffic cop, as you mentioned, or data access fiduciary, as opposed to being another consolidated data aggregator? We wanted to unbundle the consent from the store of data we wanted to unbundle the consent from the consumer of data. Both had to be done. And the only way to do that was to create a neutral party who sits in the middle. So the account aggregator is a neutral consent manager or a data access fiduciary or whatever you call it. And he works for you. He doesn't work for the data aggregator, not only work for the data user. He works for you. And he may be paying a transaction fee or something or a subscription to him. But he is your person, your agent. And therefore, at the same time, though a lot of data will pass through this consent manager, account aggregator person, he can't himself become another guy in the food chain accumulating the data. He's only a pass-through mechanism because he can't even read the data which is going through him. It's all encrypted and signed. So this very carefully designed incentive structure where you have an independent consent manager who on your behalf gets data from ABC and gives it to DEF. And in the financial system, we call the source as financial information provider. So that could be your bank or insurance company, or it could be a mutual fund company, it could be your tax system. Everybody can get their data from these. And on the other side, we have what are called FIUs or financial information users. They could be lenders or somebody offering a personal finance product or whatever. So you get your data using this impartial middle guy called the account aggregator, consent manager, and you give it to somebody on your terms. And then they provide you a service. It's a new class of entities in our digital ecosystem which act as neutral, working on your behalf entities who themselves cannot participate in the data side of it. So maybe we can take the average MSME in India. There's over 60 million MSMEs. Primary use case that comes to my mind when you think about financial inclusion and data empowerment is credit. That's how developed economies have matured, have advanced because of the availability of credit. So better underwriting, better lending, more dynamic credit infrastructure. I'm curious if you can unpack the impact of data empowerment, both from a microeconomic perspective, so from the individual, if I'm thinking as an individual MSME, let's say business owner, and then also the macroeconomic perspective, which is if I've empowered 60 million MSMEs now to have access to credit, obviously there's a significant impact on the overall Indian economic system. Yeah. So I think let's take a small MSME, which is in the GST system. India has an excellent indirect tax system, which is nationally rolled out called the GST, which is again completely digital. There are about 11 million businesses on the GST. They all file the returns electronically and they all submit their invoices electronically to the GST. 
because you need the invoices to do the matching of tax credits on GST, which is a value-added tax system. So let's say I'm a small business. So far, no bank was giving me a loan because the bank didn't have the ability to figure out whether I'm creditworthy or not. And therefore, I was relying on my own money or my earnings or my borrowing from my friends or borrowing at high rates from an informal money lender or whatever. Now, suddenly I have a digital business because I sell digitally through UPI. I buy digitally through ordering invoices. I have a chartered accountant who prepares my banks and my accounts. I pay my taxes digitally. Suddenly, all parts of my business are now digital. This digital business is creating digital history, and this can be the source of my information collateral. So this small business, MSME, who wants a loan can now ask the GST system for his tax filings and invoices, can give his payment, his sales details because he has sold everything through UPI. He can get a bank statement from the bank. He can get his own balance sheet certified by an auditor and digitally signed. He can get all this and give it to a lender who will then give him a loan. So this is information collateral at work where people get access to credit through this. So suddenly a whole class of small business that was hitherto starved of credit will now get access to credit, which is a great thing. But the macroeconomic benefit of this is if 10 million businesses get access to credit, and with that, they're able to grow their business. Let's say every small business creates two new jobs. That means they create 20 million new jobs. So rather than waiting for a few big companies to create lots of jobs, you can expect 10 million small businesses to create two jobs each. And suddenly you have economic growth and job creation happening at scale. That's the power of this. That is actually much more inclusive and much more equitable than the concentration of wealth and power that can potentially happen. At the deepest sense, we are creating an open access society, a democratized open access society, where everybody participates in the digital economy and everybody benefits from their own participation by using their information collateral to go ahead. And the quality of that job growth is also better, I would argue, because it's bottoms up job growth as opposed to tops down job growth. What is the problem we are facing in modern societies, right? We have a massive amount of wealth concentration and the middle class is not able to participate. In fact, in many countries, the standard of living is going down. This is actually democratizing access to jobs and incomes to millions of people. And so at the root of it is really an open access society. Absolutely. And another interesting second order effect to me is how data empowerment matures and unbundles interactions and supply chains across India. In a lot of developing economies, the role of suppliers as either an upstream or downstream providers for businesses is not only the role that those suppliers take on in the delivery of goods and services, but often also being a financier or credit provider. When you're able to unbundle the supply chain, I think the implications are the free market forces basically come into effect. You increase choice and competition, you drive more market efficiency, and then with all things equal, actually, that should get passed down to the consumer. So you should have, in a sense, a more formal economy versus a more informal economy. Does that reflection resonate when thinking about the application of these concepts in the Indian economy? Or how would you think about that? Oh, absolutely. We believe that what we have actually started is the journey of formalization of India. Because historically, people felt it was better to be out of the system because being in the system didn't give them any advantages. It only got them hassles in terms of paying taxes and so on. But now if you're in the system and you create a digital history of yourself, then you can get access to credit. So access to credit becomes a way to justify or give you benefits to become formal. 
Similarly, once you get access to credit, then the supply chain will get disintermediated or basically get loosened up. Because as you said, today, the supply chain is both a lender of money as well as a provider of products. And then the other thing which is happening is ONDC, which is disaggregating commerce and creating an open commerce network. So the combination of ONDC and account aggregator means the supply chain is going to get fundamentally redesigned to become much more efficient. That's good for consumers. It's good for suppliers. We are reducing costs in between. Similarly, logistics costs in the country are also coming down because of digitization, the whole set of things happening there like fast tag and so on. So all this really means a more competitive open economy with lower costs and also creating jobs in a much more broad-based manner. And the formalization of society and economy, where more and more people become part of the economy and also leading to higher taxes because more people in the system means more people are paying taxes. So I think it's a big journey that the digital revolution in India has unleashed. An understated but I think important backdrop of this entire India stock story, and we talked about it a little bit today, is how it's been designed. I'd love for you to share a little bit more insight and thought on that because it is truly unique. It's this idea of taking the best of innovation at the forefront or at the top of the funnel, but then also leveraging robust existing infrastructure and orderly regulation at the back end of the system. Maybe you can share a little bit more about how that India stack model is unique as compared to, say, analog models, let's say on the left, or kind of the traditional closed loop big tech models on the right. It really is, in a sense, the blend of both worlds, taking the best from both systems. That's right. So it's very much an open architecture. Everything is done to promote competition. It's not designed for winner-take-all. So basically, many people can participate and they compete and those who are better innovators will win using classic principles of competition and innovation. It's all about interoperability. So interoperability within a layer. So in UPI layer, it's interoperability, all payment guys. In the account aggregator layers, interoperability of all data stores and so on. But also layer and layer of interoperability. So Aadhaar stack provides one layer, UPI provides one layer, economic data empowerment provides another layer, ONDC provides another layer. But they all stack one above the other. They all interoperate with each other. So you can actually mix and match these things. Many other people involved in the last 13 years have been constant in this journey. And they have contributed to the design to make this all interoperable. So I think it's a whole new model, which is neither monolithic nor analog. It's a digital economy, but leveraging the best principles of innovation, competition, interoperability, lowering switching costs, etc., so that consumers benefit and society benefits. As we round out the conversation, I'm interested in your perspective on where we go from here. So India is in a unique position over the next several decades, certainly if compared to other developed or developing economies in the world, significant advancements in infrastructure like we talked about today, such as the India stack, but also a materially favorable demographic environment relative to the rest of the world. How do you think from the inside out of having these systems go literally from zero to scale and your observations, we didn't talk much in the conversation today, of course, but your instrumental role in co-founding Infosys, which is one of the most storied companies in the Indian IT environment. How do you think about the key opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for India? I think India is in a very sweet spot for many reasons. As we talked about it, demographics, India is the only young country in an aging world. I mean, Africa is very young too, but Africa is 54 countries. India is just one country with 1.3 million people. So it has the benefits of scale on population. It has this unique digital public goods we talked about, identity payment. So that really lays a foundation for a digitally enabled economy. 
it has 90,000 startups all raring to go who will then use these digital capabilities and create products and services that create value for themselves and their investors and create value for their consumers. And then because of companies like Infosys, India has $227 billion global digital export industry, software export industry, which has only gained momentum during the pandemic because of the digital acceleration of companies around the world. Now, that industry employs 4.5 million people, and that's expected to double in the next 10 years. That provides a huge strength to the country. It is because of the IT services exports on one side and the remittances sent by Indians home from different countries. India, the world's largest receiver of remittances, $86 billion last year. That has given India the strength to deal with the economic challenges today because India has more than $500 billion of reserves. And therefore, while it is difficult to work in you know, higher oil prices and higher inflation and higher interest rates in the West and so on, India is able to deal with it much better than many other emerging market countries that have really got fallen into difficult times. So the strength provided by the IT services and remittances and the talent pool it has, migrant 90,000 startup ecosystem, and this massively publicly enabled digital public goods are all coming together to put India in a sweet spot, which is why people expect India's economic growth to be among the highest in the world in the next 10 years and why it's attracting so much attention and capital around the world. This has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to help us understand the perspective, certainly of where India has been, where it has come in such a short period over the last decade, and most excitedly where it's going ahead. So thank you again. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Romy. It's been a great chat, and thank you for hosting this. To keep learning about the topics discussed, head to joincolossus.com, where you'll find our curated list of resources, a transcript for this episode, and a library of conversations on investing and business. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. Mm-hmm.